If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Rochelle's. Today is episode 249. We're going to be speaking with Skip. How you doing, Skip? Peace. Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. I'm glad to hear that. So you ready to do this? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. Let's start off how I always do. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. My childhood and growing up. Oh, my God. You let's really want to start, start diving deep, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, I am... Uh, I was born into the home of a preacher man. I, uh, yeah, my father's a minister and um, that has its, its good things and its bad things. And a lot of the bad things weren't actually even being the minister's son as far as within the family. It's the expectations that the people at, in the church, the congregation put on the family. Like you're the preacher's kid. You're supposed to be perfect. Yeah, right. I was about to say that. Yeah, yeah. You know, at home we're just it's we're just a family. But as soon as you get to church, it's like, um, you know, I I I remember. I'll go back for a minute. I remember when I was sixteen. This this will be a good example. When I was sixteen, uh, there was a woman in church. I, I grew up with her son, and he was out drugging and and hardly ever home, running away. And she came up one day and she's pinched my cheek and she goes, I wish my son was just like you. And at this point, I'm like, uh, lady, no, you don't, because I'm gay and I'm sure you'd much rather have your son be an addict than gay. You know, that's what I've yeah. been thinking. Um, so um, there was especially a lot. With, especially being in church. Exactly. Exactly. And in the <laughs> 80s, this was in the 80s. But there was a lot of expectations and a lot of pressure that. Um, you know, when I was younger, I I didn't really even see it. Um, going I back got real to, quick, it must yeah. have been hard. Was it really hard growing up gay in a preacher's house, in yeah. a minister's house? Yeah. Yes. Um, when I was when I was like three, I started. I got to start singing, right? And music has always been my life from the time that I can uh, remember. Sorry. Walgreens. Walgreens is calling me. Oh, yeah. Your prescriptions are um, ready? Prescriptions. Yeah. Yay. Um, <laughs> bad joke. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I started singing when I was three years old. I was got the spotlight, you know, and it was fun and I loved singing. And, you know, at that point, you know, where, where I was taught songs to sing, Jesus loves me. And, um, I just, I loved it. And I also started, uh, when I was about five, I started tap dancing. So music was not only in my voice, it was just everywhere. You know, I started playing the piano. Um, as I started to get older and around uh, 10, 11 years old, um, 
I started to notice something was really different. And at that time, at this day and age, I don't know if it even means anything to you, but the name Anita Bryant, she was... Um, no, I've never heard of her. She was... Uh, um, I, um, she used to be a, a Miss Florida, right? A long, long time ago. And she became a pop, um, very popular. Um, but as she got older, she began a crusade against homosexuals. And homosexuals were perverts. They were um, they were mentally ill, and they were recruiting children in schools. The story <laughs> sounds kind of familiar, right? Yes, they, I, that's not the first time you've heard. I've heard something like that. Yeah, Absolutely not. And I'm, sorry, I'm sorry for laughing. I laugh. No, it's how outrageous it is recruiting. Like you know, it, you know, it crosses my mind. You know, sometimes in high schools they let the Marines set up like a recruiting station for that day. <laughs> it's like they're acting like gay people have their own recruiting station for the day that's right come on down <laughs> that's right that's right that's absolutely right so i was 10 11 years old but this was on the national news every night every night at that time um because she had really started this crusade and then in san francisco was this guy named harvey milk who was like um the first um public elected to office who is openly gay and um so they they started like there was like this culture war i don't I'm, i don't know of a better way to put it anyway it was on the news every night so i'm watching this and what i'm learning is i'm not alone right because I, I started to figure out that i'm gay I like men and you know her uh her preaching against it actually taught me of like oh, that's me. And, but it also started to make me question, you know, I, I, I'm told that God loves me, but now I'm hearing God loves me and he's going to send me to hell. And um, my response to that was, well, I'll sing more. I'm at 14. I'm like, I'm going to become a preacher. I started preaching when I was 14, like doing youth rallies and singing and, um, and I thought maybe God won't let me be gay. And the really the worst part about it is that there's there's no discussion of it, and there's nowhere for a kid to look out to, to ask questions. Right? It's repressed. It's evil. It's bad. Don't be that. <laughs> And uh, of course, I couldn't talk about it at home. It was never even in my parents' consciousness at that point, you know? I mean, um, but I started looking for the affirmation in places that 13, 14 year old boys do not need to be, right? And I started to uh, look for, I was allowing myself to be abused. And it was like getting that affirmation. It's, I mean, it was sick and twisted at 13, 14, you don't have, you can't figure this stuff out. Right. You, you have no one to talk to. Um, and what were you getting yourself to like sexual situations? Yeah. Yeah. And I learned at 13, how to live a double life. Right. I was like, so I learned at 13 to like become, that was become an addict. Right. Um, I, so on one hand, 
I'm in church several nights a week. I'm I'm praying, God, please don't let me be gay. But then on the other hand, I'm I'm allowing myself to be sexually abused. And um it was just really twisted. And nobody to talk to. Nobody to talk to about it. Um I did talk to one minister that um, I saw on TV. She uh, she had opened up a church that was welcoming to gays, which in the 80s was unheard of, early 80s unheard of. And and so I called her. I was like 12 years old and I called her and I, I told her, you know, hey, I'm gay and I want to come out to my family. And she was like, don't you dare. She was like, you know, save up, you know, work, save your money, wait till you're 18 years old and you could be on your own. Because, and this is the 80s, mind you, she was like, this is what's going to happen. They're going to take you to a psychiatrist. They'll put you in an institution. They'll give you um, shock therapy. And she explained what that was. And uh, that's exactly you know, what would have happened. You know, she wasn't being dramatic. So um, by the time I was 15, 16, I... Um, had allowed my body to be abused so much that I, I just, I, I had no control. Right. And I was, I'd look in the mirror. I was disgusted with myself and that's, I became bulimic, anorexic bulimic and um, started that when I was 16, that went on for a few years. And again, it was that, that self hate, that loathing. Mm -hmm. um, nobody to really talked to. Uh, it was unheard of that uh, a young man would have anorexia or bulimia at that time. Um, and, you know, it was a girl's disease. Exactly. And, and um, I went to Bible college and uh, went there for a year and a half. And it's, I was seeing this girl my second year. We were, we were really good friends. She knew, when we first started going out, I told her I was bi, you know, because that's that was kind of like the foot in the door, like you know, yeah. Um, and uh, by the end of that semester, she was like, "Skip, you need to move to Los Angeles and come out of the closet." <laughs> so, what's, I mean, uh, what's Bible school like? Um, what was it like? Yeah, what's I, I? I'm always just curious. What's it like when priests and people go to school? It was. Um, it was, uh, oh my God, that's so many years ago. <laughs> you know, it it was, um, I it was it was pretty conservative, um, but I found you know I found my ways to do my thing. You know, I was really good at pretending to be like the perfect person. I was really good at that, and. Um, I would get extra late passes. I'd say I was, you know, I was working, I got a job and then I was, and I'd say I'm working late. So I would get a pass to like come in past curfew. I wasn't at work, you know, I was, I was cruising the bars. Um, and so I, that was, it was, it, what was it like? I, I just learned to like live up that double standard again total hypocrisy um one of my professors found out my uh 
uh, my first year there and they um, put me in conversion therapy and oh, said, no. if you're, if you're going to stay here, then you have to do conversion therapy. And if you don't do it, we're going to kick you out and we're going to tell your parents. So, um, yeah, I did it. And it was basically, I, I, I just ignore, you know, I, what, what do they do in that type of therapy? I find it to be so absurd. Um, had to um at that time the, the what i did i mean i it was like going through and reading these bible verses over and over and talking about how just reliving painful parts you know and being uh, and being told that you know i'm going to hell because of that unless i change my ways and you know, it was, I, I just remember when I would go, I would just numb out. I would do what they'd say and I would numb out. So what happened in those sessions, I, I really don't remember much. Um, but, uh, so I'm, I moved, I did leave seminary and after my, the second half of my sophomore year, I moved to Los Angeles and went to a music school. And it was there that, um, you know, it was uh, 2,000 miles away from home, and I was able to um, start to come out, you know, to myself and, and have friends and let them know I'm gay. And, you know, I was living with my brother at the time, but he was so into his own career that he really wasn't even paying attention to me, so, which was just fine. Um, and, but I kept... I kept up with the binging and purging until that year when I was 19 and I was introduced to uh, alcohol and cocaine on the same night. I think it was Long Island iced teas. Pretty sure it was. Might've been margaritas. Either way. <laughs> I was Long Island iced teas are strong. Yes. And, and you I don't realize they don't no. taste it either. So you uh, just, uh, I remember. Stucking them up. Oh, snorting hey, the man. Coke. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that that was it. It wasn't even much longer than that that I I stopped the purging and I was just on alcohol and cocaine. And, and that helped uh, you maintain a, your the weight you wanted. Yeah, I you know the worst part of my bulimia, I was a hundred and forty pounds. I think I'm six foot. Oh wow. And, um, you know, I still thought I was fat. I never, I never, I was never athletic, so I never worked out or anything. I was, you know, so I'm six foot and I'm looking down and I just see flab and, you know, there were no muscles cause I never built any. And I thought that meant I was fat. Um, but the, the alcohol and cocaine that just became like my escape. Yeah. And then I, I started studying music and um, on a, and started pursuing it more of a professional career. Um, and the, it even went into change from like, uh, I, was, I was training classical, but now at this school, I was training to be a jazz singer and a pop singer. And there was something 
there was something missing in it. Um, I, I didn't feel like I deserved it. I didn't feel like I deserved to be have music. And it took me a long time to figure out why. A long time. Actually, I mean, decades later when I got into recovery, um, it was because, you know, I before I was singing and hoping, you know, I was singing for God and hoping that God would save me and um, hoping that, you know, if I if I just did this enough and use my talents, that God would save me and I wouldn't be gay. But now that I was coming out and I'm still singing and loving it, there was that still that spiritual disconnect of like, I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be a good musician. I don't deserve to be a good singer. Um, so I spent a lot of time just partying. And um, yeah. You were kind of self-soothing? What? Self-soothing with the party? Yeah. Yeah, and um, became pretty, again, came pretty, very promiscuous, right? And it was, again, looking for validation. Everything was always looking for validation um, because I was never validated for being my true self. You know, I was getting validated in church growing up, but it was for being the persona of Skip. It wasn't for, I wasn't being validated for the true Skip. So um, the drugs and the alcohol and the partying were to help soothe that. Being promiscuous was like looking for that validation. And um, that went on. I mean, and, it, you know, I, I slowly, I would make progress in my music career. And then I would sabotage. I'd make some progress in my career. And then I'd sabotage. Make some, you know, I, would, I just kept going up. And then down, slowly up and then down. And I did that for 20 years. It's a shame what drugs do and alcohol as far as the way they affect us and the things we love, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. So what did you do? So you, you went to music school, right? Mm -hmm. You Did you graduate and everything? I did. Well, I went to, that was a year program. Um, at the end of that year, actually, um, I was 19 and I came out to my parents over the phone. Um, and I started seeing a, a, a therapist while I was in Los Angeles and they, I became really depressed and they wanted to put me on antidepressants. And, um, at that time, well, I was on my parents' insurance, but at that time, parents had to like sign off on anything. And they're like, if you're on antidepressants, we want to know what's going on. Like, what's really going on? So I came out to them on the phone and they're like, okay, well, you're coming back to Ohio. You're not staying in Los Angeles. Um, we'll do some family therapy. And um, and I, I went back to Ohio. And two weeks later, I got my first boyfriend and there was no family therapy. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's, uh, why didn't you guys end up going to therapy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just, we didn't, um, I didn't really want to, I mean, what, you know, what was no, I wouldn't to, either. you know, what was there to go to the family therapy about? Um, 
but I was there for an, a year, a couple of years. And then um, I broke up with that, that guy and I moved back to Los Angeles to go back to school again. But real quick, once you moved back home, how was everything with your dad? Being that, you know, that was very, that was very difficult. You know, like I said before, it was never even in their consciousness that, you know, you know, I could pretend to be the perfect boy and they believed it because it was never in their consciousness that I would, you know, I'd say I'm going to a, a, a youth group prayer meeting, but I was going out to like, um, you know, find a way to be picked up, you know, and it was never in their consciousness, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't blame them for that because it's, but when I came out, then it was every belief that they had was being challenged. You know, it's it's coming out. Um, you know, it, this was the time of Jerry Falwell. This is right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Everything that they're seeing on the news is like extremely negative. Um, and so, but everything about their religious beliefs was being challenged. Suddenly they, you know, it was like, oh my God, our son's gay. We've always believed and we're told that gay people are going to hell. Is our son going to hell? You know, it's like that whole, they had to figure all that out. And it was part of their journey. And it was difficult. It was difficult. Um, they they never it was not perfect but they never ever once said you're not our son and i am blessed by that because there are so many people that they are disowned and um you know it's it's so it was a challenge um and you know i don't i it was a challenge but they were willing to work through it because i was their son and um it's great i mean because like you said if i was you just with their background i would have been terrified i had a cousin who was the same thing they were uh parent my uncle's not ministry but him and my aunt very very religious very religious okay. and my cousin's gay and when she came out i was like oh boy i hope everything goes well there and they were very open and accepting yeah yeah i don't know if i would use the word accepting at that point you know um <laughs> But uh, they were still uh, loving, and um, they were, you know, they they hoped for a long time that I would turn straight, you know. But yeah. by this point, I was like, no, I'm 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 not going to be. Um, that's not going to happen. I tried it, and it doesn't work. Um, so they, yeah, that's that uh, wasn't until. Uh, 96 after I graduated from undergrad um, and moved from Los Angeles to Chicago and I met uh, the man who was my best friend and partner for 17 years and uh, when he came into my life they accepted him big time because he was you know he loved me he adored me he just you know, he took care of me. We took care of each other and they could see that bond. 
And he was the kind of guy he would sit at the table and talk football and golf with my dad and then go in the kitchen and help my mom prepare, you know, cause he was a caterer. So he, he was, he was just totally loved by um, most of my whole family. That's great. But yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we were drink we were definitely drinkers together. Mike and I, we, we drank um, big time. Yeah, that was, um, my next, was, that was my next question is when did you get deep into drugs and alcohol? I, you know, that was when I was 19, the alcohol just was there, you know, and the cocaine was every once in a while or whatever, but that was alcohol, your first time 19? Mm -hmm. That was your first you time You know, I 19? always thought that was the, that's, I always thought that was the first time I had used drugs or alcohol. Um, I mean, I, I tasted a beer when I was 13. I spit it out. I didn't like it. But I used to do poppers, sniff poppers from the time I was like 14, you know, inhalants. What's a popper? Poppers, they're inhalants. And um, they get you high. They call it, um, um, I would carry them around. They come, they'd call them video head cleaner. And they're in a little jar and I'd carry around and sniff them. So... I really, you know, I was doing drugs by the time I was like 15 years old. Okay. And so it's just not in the conventional way that we'd think, you know, it's people sniffing glue. That is a form of using drugs, right? And this was uh, not very different. Uh, when I was, um, so when I lived here in Chicago, when I moved here to Chicago, I opened a recording studio after a couple of years. Um, I started, I got a band together a jazz band and um, was performing some. And my, st my studio, I, I had, I opened, I started my own label. I had a couple albums come out. One of them was me solo. One was with my big band. And then I was producing a national artist at that time. I got her to sign to my label. And um, during that time, I discovered how I had done crystal meth the first time when I was 18. Um, I snorted it, did it once in a while, you know, it's really hard to do. Um, but because it hurt, you know, it was not an easy, but um, somebody showed me how to smoke it. And that was it. That was it. I, I started hiding it from Mike. I was doing it at the recording studio. Um, in fact, there became, there came a day when I decided to shut down my recording studio so that I could sell crystal meth and use full time. And um, that's what I did. I closed my I consciously closed my recording studio so that I could use crystal meth. And I was a dealer for like three years, and I. At first it was fun, maybe for a hot minute, but then it wasn't fun. And it was just perpetual, like, and, and I couldn't stop um, because my income was involved in it. Um, but I, you know, with crystal meth, um, I used to think it was just a gay thing, but it's not. <laughs> it's like gay, straight, whatever. It drives up the libido. 
big time. So there's usually a lot of um, craziness that goes on with it. And I would be involved in some very crazy scenes and um, be around a lot of people. And I would feel so alone. You know, and I would have these gatherings at my house and I would end up in the living room on the couch, sofa, curled up in a ball, fetal position, just feeling like the loneliest person in the world. There was a day that in 2006 that um, I woke up or I came to and you know, I, would, I had been so depressed. I was even afraid to go get on the L station here, on the L train here in Chicago. because I, I just kept visualizing jumping or falling in front of it. But this one morning I, I came to it and I thought, today is the day the pain ends. It ends today. Just go jump in front of the L train and be done with it. And I, could, I never saw my life past 40. And I thought, you're, you're 39, you're almost 40 years old. In the last 20 years, you have screwed up every opportunity that life has given you to succeed. You have self-sabotaged. You have absolutely nothing to show for your life. Just go do it. And there was, as I was doing that, there was kind of like this math going on in my head. And there was this thought that, well, wait a minute, if you're going to be 40 and you messed up the last 20 years, why don't you do something the next 20 years that's worthwhile? And then you'll only be 60 and 60 is not that old anymore, right? Yeah. And then, <clears throat> then, wow, Skip, if you live to be 60, you could live to be 80. And that just baffled me. It, And that was the moment another thought came in uh, I consciously had the thought, your life doesn't have to be over. It could be half over. And it was with that thought that I got up and I got on the train and I went and asked for help. And um, now I see that moment as the gift of desperation, G-O-D. That was my first, that was my first uh, experience with the God of my understanding. I went to, uh, and you know, I, I forgot to mention that I had been in and out of 12-step uh, rooms from the time I was 21. I knew I knew I had a problem when I was 21. And uh, I would go in the rooms and I would see that third step. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And I'm like, fuck you very much. I don't need that. I've done that. Doesn't work. Bye. What are you drunken derelicts going to tell me about God anyway? And... Um, I, when I got to rehab, I was so broken this time. I was ready, you know, my life didn't have to be over. It could be half over. So there was hope. And I read that on the wall, we turn our third step. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I, you know, it's italicized and underlined, right? But this was like the first time that it really set in that oh wow i don't have to have that god that i you know now i see it as i grew up with the god of my misunderstanding because my misunderstanding was god loves you and he's going to send you to the hell um 
but I didn't, that, that wasn't my understanding and I didn't have to believe that anymore. And the first thing I did was it never made sense to me. Like, how could God be a he? And there was never a she like that. That just, you know, that never made sense to me. Like, you know, um, so I did, I couldn't figure it out then, but what I did was in my mind, turn my will life over to the care of God as I understand God. So I just left it that way until I, you know, until I could figure it out. Um, it wasn't much longer that I started to realize that meetings um, for me were the, the start of my higher power. And that GOD, the group of drunks or the group of drug addicts in, in recovery, that was the start of um, my higher power. And I love that concept because that power, you know, I had always been excluded, you know, uh, the real me always felt excluded, like I never belonged. And in a room, and when there's a circle, you know, that power goes through every one of us and together we make a higher power and uh, I'm included. I'm included because I have a desire to stop using and that's it. And it's so simple. So that became, and that still is, you know, I like to experiment with meditation. I've, I've studied uh, different spiritual practices. Um, try to be open-minded and, and just, you know, have some understanding, take what I can from different things. But sometimes it's like, wait, you know, I, I, my thoughts become so confused of like what I believe that I can just say, wait, this is the foundation. This is it. This group of drug addicts, this is where it all starts. If you got this, everything else will, will reveal itself as it needs to. So I, um, been on that. That was, uh, I went to rehab on 420, 2006. Oh, what a date. What a date. Huh? <clears throat> yeah. And that is my clean date because I smoked a joint on the 19th. So that is, uh, that is my clean date. So, uh, here in a few days, it'll be 17 years, God willing. And when I got clean, I tried to, you know, I was just so happy to be alive and there was a lot of joy, but the moment I went to try to pick up music, it was not there at all. I could not play the piano. I could not sing. I would try and I, I thought I lost it. And um, I really needed a creative outlet. So I started taking art classes and at a community college I already had my bachelor's degree. I, would, I didn't care about, you know, credits and stuff like that, but it was cheap. And, uh, you know, um, I started experimenting with drawing and painting and stained glass and uh, learned a lot about meditation in these things, actually, because, you know, you're drawing a still life. You are meditating on, you know, you are in that moment. But I also discovered something else, and that is that I can because my grades started improving over that nine months. And again, I wasn't doing it for grades. It was just something that I noticed. And I even sold a couple paintings. And I'm like, wow, if I can start something new that I've never done before and put my mind to it, then 
and get better at it, why can't I do that with music? Like I can get music back. And uh, so I did. I started from the very beginning. I pulled out my elementary one books and the scales and um, started from the very beginning and got good enough that um, I was able to I was able to write again. I couldn't sing. I was able to play enough as a you know to use a composition tool. So I got accepted at the University of Miami in the composition department. And I went and studied film scoring. And, you know, so the path kept going. Um, and all this time, there was still this part of me that even though I was getting it back, you know, um, when I stopped the church, I felt like I wasn't worthy because I wasn't doing it for God, right? When I got sober, and I was getting it back, there was still part of me that felt like I wasn't worthy because um, what I learned through my step work was I didn't lose my music, Jim. I didn't lose my music. I abandoned it. Just like, you know, I used, you know, it's easy for a lot of addicts to say, I lost my family, I lost my job, I lost my home, I lost my relationships. And for me, I've come to realize that all of that is bullshit. I didn't lose my family. I abandoned them long before they cut me off. I didn't lose my job. I stopped going. I didn't lose my relationship, right? I was yeah. like, I was hiding, you know, hiding and, and not being honest. I abandoned the fidelity of that relationship. And it is the same with my music. I made the conscious decision to close my recording studio so I could become a crystal meth dealer. So even when I was getting that back, there was still this part of like, I'm not worthy of this. So that had been a, a journey for quite a bit. And then I realized that at some point it was making amends. I call it making amends with my muse. And I actually do some workshops on this with um, within my coaching practice, making amends with your muse, uh, reclaiming your creativity in um, recovery. Because just as I made an um, um, amends with my family, just as I made an amends with um, my partner, um, made amends with uh, my the people I owed money to, you know, I make an amends with my muse and I see my muse as my connection to my higher power with music and any art. And as I made that amends, then I start to feel worthy, right? And I can start to feel worthy of being creative. I can start to feel worthy of um, doing the things I love and that I'm passionate about it. And when I look at it that way, it's like, I never, I did not lose my music because of addiction. I gave up my music for addiction, but recovery has gifted music back to me. And with that gratitude, I get to use that music to be of service. So it's come full circle. You know, I, it's, it is, in a sense, it is, it's, it's fulfilling a spiritual, that spiritual hole that I always felt that 
was was lacking as far as you know when I when I first uh, came out and started using it all the time and felt the emptiness of God, the God of my misunderstanding. Now recovery has shown me, yeah, there is a spiritual meaning for my music and for my art, and that is to I can use it to carry the message, I can use it to share my stories, and to um, to help others. Uh, maybe inspire others, maybe use it to encourage. And now take it a step further. You know, I've gone through this process of 17 years. Now I get to help other musicians and artists in recovery who are trying to find that worthiness and reclaiming their creativity and find the purpose for it. It's awesome. Sounds like you're doing good things. I I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. So life's treating yeah. you pretty well pretty well now nowadays life is treating me well um you know i'm i uh i'm aging a little bit so i've got some you know things that uh but you know what like i have some serious i've had some serious back problems this last year but as a sponsor once told me those back problems are luxury problems because in reality i could have died 17 years ago by jumping in front of that planet train and the fact that I'm alive today, uh, I, and, and that I'm alive and I get to have back problems, that is a luxury problem. Yeah. I don't always wake up in the morning feeling all that, trust me, or going to bed, you know, there's usually some curse words through all of it. But when I, you know, getting back to, um, getting back to that. You know, it's is 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 the important is gratitude. So creeping up on the end here, let me ask you one last question, my friend. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Your passions can become your purpose. And when you when you're clean and you can start to trust your you, you know what you're passionate about, um that use that and let it become your purpose. I, they can work with me. I'm a, I, uh, you can find me at skipsams.com. I have, um, anyone can call me, um, book as, uh, I do a discovery session for free for anyone who calls and just wants to explore what their creativity means, what their purpose is now that they're clean and sober. Maybe they've got their, um, their talent back, but they're not sure what to do with it. Um, I like to, I love to work with people and explore like what the possibilities are and help them get on the right road. So I do group, group coaching as well. I have a program called the creative purpose project. And it's exactly what we've been talking about is finding, uh, finding, reclaiming your creativity and finding out what the purpose is and finding the right projects to do, to move, move it all forward. So that's skipsams.com. Awesome. And just S-K-I-P-S-A-M-S.com, right? Yep, that's it. All right, man. Did you have anything else you want to throw in? Uh, thank you. You're amazing. Thank you for this opportunity. No I saw your cat back there. My cat's right here. Yeah, we have guests. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah I'm very glad that he uh, behaved during this whole time. That's very rare. Yeah, same thing here. Yeah. <laughs>
But so, uh, no, you go first. I just thank you very much. No, I wanted to say the same thing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I can't do the, I can't do the podcast without you guys. Awesome. All right, my friend. So sit tight for a minute. I'm going to do the little sales pitch here. Okay. All right. For, for everyone watching and listening, if you like what you saw on her, but go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, TikTok. Or you can also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free literature as well as free resources. Also, Addicts Anonymous has a book coming out. Hopefully, I've uh, been speaking with my publisher, so I'm hoping by the end of this month. I know I've been saying that for a while now, but there's a more solid date so far. So I'll keep you guys posted about that. I hope you enjoy, enjoyed what you heard and saw today. And until next time.